Are you on the RCR mailing list? Never miss a beat of the news and hard-hitting stories you've come to know and love. Stay in the loop. Visit realitycheck.radio forward slash email. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Catherine Ennis-Carter is an independent international development consultant specialising in governance, public administration, public sector reform, policy development and more. You, I'm sure, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, uh, kind of uh, are aware of Catherine. She's been on our show a couple of times already, a guest on, on Breakfast here before, talking about disinformation, the industry around it in New Zealand and its many projects, and that's been fascinating. And uh, Catherine is back with us today. Catherine, good to have you back on RCR. Hi, Paul. It's great to be back, and we've been having an exciting time. Lots of rocking and rolling with the new government. <laughs> As my favourite astronaut, John Young, used to say, what a ride, what a ride. And that <laughs> kind of feels um, what it's been like. Okay, we're here to talk about two things specifically. Um, your choice on which one you want to start on. Um, I'd, I'd be interested in going media first because that's my core sort of interest. And I, when, when I knew that we would be talking, I was wondering what you'd say about this. So do you want to start on the media bribery, which exploded the heads of people, <laughs> didn't it? I mean, it really did. Um, there was quite a, a reaction to that, um, though when you're a cornered rat, I suppose that's what you do. Um, comments that Winston Peters made uh, right uh, about um, the election time and then during those or at the conclusion of those coalition negotiations. So bribery, was that a too strong a word to use, Catherine? No, of course it wasn't. And I mean, you know, on one on the one hand, um, I mean, who can blame Winston Peters for wanting to have a pot shot at the media, given you know for decades they've basically either ignored him or 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 you know sort set out to discredit him. And the only question they've ever actually been interested in asking him is um, through every election campaign, who are you going to go with? So. Yeah. Like like kids in the back seat. Are we there yet? Are we yeah. there yet? Yeah. Shut up. Go, who are you going to go with? <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, and Winston has obviously been having fun ignoring or <laughs> making little pot shots at the media. However, you know, we need not to ignore the significant um, background that's in behind these comments about bribery and um, in relation to the public interest journalism fund and um it's been fascinating to see the squawking and flapping going on in the media um in response to those comments and i was particularly amused and interested in a piece um on news hub uh tv3 um jenna lynch you know she was earnestly preaching um at the public about how chris luxon needed to get winston under control and it was absolutely inappropriate that um he'd made such statements as the deputy prime minister and all of this so it's been fascinating but um we need to come back to the serious aspects of this and i'm interested in a lot of the you know what sits in behind all this stuff about the media um, and I've got a very interesting document which was released under a Official Information Act uh, request. And it's a document from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet dated uh, December 
2020. And what's significant about this? That's three years ago, by the way. Okay. Yes. But what's significant about this is that people should know that using the media has been a deliberate plank of the government strategy on communication and information for the public on this whole COVID thing. Um, and specifically, a key part of the government strategy for countering disinformation, oh. which takes us back, you know, to that whole thing. And of course, as I've, um, you know, as I've noted before, <clears throat> the whole premise for this uh, countering disinformation approach is that um, what the government says is truth, and everything else is mis and disinformation. And you know. We go back to the Prime Minister's single source of truth. Um, and also, uh, as I've again noted before, um, the very beginnings of the disinformation project were set up with an abstract that basically said that, that anything else um, was mis or disinformation. And they were set up to go with that as early as February 2020. Yeah. When, you know, for the, as far as most of us were concerned, the whole COVID thing had just appeared. So this is well planned. And, and this document that um, has been released under the OIA request um, is really interesting because it's setting out a strategic framework for strengthening resilience um, in countering mis- and disinformation. Um, so some of the things that are covered in that document are they want they are planning to set up a interagency um, coordinating group across government, so they could have an integrated whole of government approach. So it names um, ministers and the different government departments that were particularly concerned in that. Um, um, but do, do we need to know any names? Because obviously not, one one of those that came through up till just recently was Hipkins. So I imagine he was there, right? Oh, the yes. Oh, yes, yes. All those ministers, and it includes the Minister of um, Education, um, uh, Justice, um, a whole range right. of um, ministry, um, yep. uh, government ministries and departments. Um, and uh, so it talks about a whole-of-government approach um, and then goes on to talk about um, that it would be more effective if efforts to counter disinformation would be driven from outside government by civil society organisations, that's non-government organisations, yep. um, yep. academia and the media. So that was so, already in the plan. They knew that anything that, that, that looked like that coming from them would not be credible or could have holes picked in it or um, would not be believable. Um, but um, kind of in a subversive way, <laughs> using oh, well, the already trusted organs of media and, yeah. and those channels that are traditionally relied upon by the public, that's how you pull the levers. Um, I'm just wondering, yeah. uh, th this plan, going back to 2020, does it include the disinformation project? Are they part, is the setup, yes, does it's the mentioned. setup include them specifically as like an arm of it, you know? Um, it's mentioned, I mean, there are bits redacted, and I think one of the redacted okay. pieces names them specifically. Um, but it certainly refers to, um, uh, it mentions, um, because the, dis the misinformation project, as it was then known, oh, okay. was, was set up in, in early 
2020, February 2020, yeah. um, under the um, Te Punaha, Punaha Matatini, which was um, the University of Auckland. And it talks about how um, the funding, the initial funding through that had been channeled through MB, which I thought was very interesting. Because the, ministry, the Ministry of Everything turns out MB have been involved, they got their hands dirty at every level, it seems, in this. Right, right at the beginning. And then, of course, we knew that the this was being kind of sponsored and promoted by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And those associations have been quite obvious right from the beginning. Yeah. So this whole thing um, has been uh, engineered and, and planned um, right from the beginning. Um, and I'll talk about it. It talks about procurement of um, uh, non-government organisations like um, universities and think tanks uh, who can help them uh, monitor the use of, of dis disinformation and misinformation. Um, but using the media was the was a key key plank. So we talk about um, you know they've decided that it was more effective to use these uh, three channels: academia, media, and um, civil society organisations um, to. Um, uh, to basically be, well, they recognise that that could be that would be more effective in securing public buy-in. Well, you, you just reminded me because I was working for Radio New Zealand then, and I was one of their frontline news readers, newscasters. Okay, and um, the big problem I had, and I'm just mentioning this because I'm wondering if if I was seeing the effects of it without really knowing at the time was this uh, relentless reporting of infection numbers. Yeah. But no reporting of really sick uh, hospitalisation numbers and deaths. No, of course. It was just that... relentless, relentless infections. Yes. There was no context to it. There was nothing. And I would push back on the organisation and say, look, I, I don't even feel comfortable doing this. We're, this is fear porn and you're making me do it. Yeah. Um, tell well, me why course... we're doing it. And, and it created an angry reaction. Now, I thought that was just people losing their minds. But I'm starting to wonder if there was serious pressure that I didn't know about that were being put on people. I don't know how you'd communicate that down through the ranks. But to do this this way and, you know, as part of a comms strategy at the time. And with a bit of hindsight and a bit of time to reflect now, I'm kind of feeling that that was that was what that was. Yes, well, I'm quite sure because we were subjected to relentless day after day after day, the numbers, the number of cases, um, you know, the number of hospitalizations. And we, we used to lead with them, Catherine. It was the lead story every time, the lead story. Every day. And, and the Prime Minister and um, Bloomfield were, you know, up before on the public podium every day, um, you know, just incessant. We used to cross to them live. <laughs> Every day, yeah, absolutely. Or you'd listen to Radio New Zealand at one o'clock. What was yeah, going that's to be right. The, the, yeah. the briefing for Every, this well, everyone. We had to stop everything. Yeah, but going back to this document again, oh, yeah. I've been fascinated by the language in it, um, and it's just so blatant. Um, you know, that they were going to use these strategies. And at one stage in the document, I find that, found this fascinating phrase. 
about not only were they going to have a coordinating whole of government group um, to coordinate this across the the uh, entire government, um, but also, so in, in addition to whole of government, they were going to have a whole of system approach. You know, whole how, of system? Whole of system, and what they mean by that is like whole of society. And ah, so yeah, that's all right. where the you know the use of the media and civil society organisations and everything is is so important, because I mean, how totalitarian is that? Well, that's going all the way, actually. Um, the thing that that given the timeline we're talking about here is they anticipated all this. Absolutely, they so- anticipated that they needed to persuade people in a particular way to do something that if there was any debate or any sort of transparency would would result they have perceived in some sort of pushback yeah. so they try to get ahead of that which is kind of what's the word manipulative <laughs> stinky. stinky well to be honest you know in my going on for 40 years of experience of being either in government as a public servant or around government as a consultant and advisor. I can't think of an example where I've seen a more deliberately manipulative um, document as this is. And, I mean, some of the quotes from it are really interesting. For so example, going back to the media, there's a quote that says, agencies and media outlets have become more adept at proactive communication strategies to counter mis- and disinformation narratives and, where possible, to get ahead of potential mis- and disinformation campaigns. And then they specifically refer to um, uh, wanting to get ahead of anticipated disinformation about the COVID-19 vaccines. So that's a specific intention of this government of this government document. It's anticipating that, A, they needed a whole strategic framework to manage this whole communication and dis- countering disinformation campaign. And secondly, um, that it needed to be like whole of system um, and as well as, you know, whole of government. And what you can see in the document, it's it's slewn through with, various, you know, platitudes about ensuring, you know, freedom of expression and the oh, free yeah. internet and everything else. So you read a paragraph with those sort of platitudes in it, and the very next para- paragraph <coughs> is setting out something entirely different. What, so, does that tell, what, what does that tell you about the thinking there? Is that sort of some weird siloed thinking where you can't sort of occupy two or see two positions at once? from the helicopter view or is that is that some kind of mental disorder <laughs> where well, I, it's hard to explain for me you know i'm just wondering what's going on in a person's in a, in the collective people's heads that you can't see the incredible contradiction and and actually fallacy it's not even true what you're saying no i don't think um it's written by people who can't see those contradictions I think what it is, is the deliberate use of hypocrisy um, to make the thing acceptable. <laughs> so they would have to be really <laughs> believing in it to do that, because what, what what it's ended up doing is a whole lot of people are dying. 
So, yes. you know, nice job, guys. You know, great job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's there's various signals um, in the document too. <laughs> you asked before about um, the agencies which were identified yeah. as well as the ministers to form the basis of this interagency coordination group. Internal Affairs, GCSB, MB, MFAT, Ministry of Culture and Heritage, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Health and the New Zealand Police, and it was to be led by the DPMC, the Prime Minister's Department. GCSB is our spy agency, isn't it? Yes, and the reason so, that so what are they doing? What are they doing in there? I thought they were there well, to spy on our enemies who would do us wrong. They have the ability, the techno, the technology, presumably the resources, to go to wherever they want on seeing who's doing what. I would well, exactly that, because um, of course part of the rationale um, for all of the stuff that we've seen, and it's right through this document, is you know the whole thing about. Um, keeping the public safe from um, terrorism, uh, you know, and which is, you know, and associating disinformation with terrorism. And then you can bring in the security agencies, like we saw Rebecca Kitteridge being interviewed in the Fire and Fury um, uh, document, so-called documentary. Yeah, that I don't think that before. actually raises that description. It's It's... More yeah, like a, but, a comedy fast that they made by yes. accident, thinking they were being yeah. serious. Well, yes, but um, you know, using the the kind of um, security and relating it to terrorism as a way of bringing in those agencies which have a mandate for surveillance. But isn't so that think- akin to the Soviet Union? That's what <laughs> they used to do. <laughs> Paul, I've worked in um, ex-Soviet countries, so I'm very familiar with these kind of tactics. So we've we've basically, at that period of time, I don't know if we've got it back, we have lost our country. We have lost it. Well, if you look Seems. at this, uh, well, yes, but we have to get it back. No, That's, I know, and we're trying everything we can, but wow, you know. Yeah, but if you look at look at this quote, which I think is typical of the ones in this document that are important, Disinformation is the danger of undermining public health narratives, including by spreading views about the cause and origin of the pandemic, e.g. claiming it as a bioweapon, questioning the political motives of lockdowns and mask use, and promoting conspiracy theories about future vaccines. So what they're setting out in this document is that they want to get ahead of um, potential um, they say disinformation. Um, we'd say concerned community um, opposition or resistance to these experimental vaccines. Um, they, it's very clear that they they want they're setting out a framework for getting ahead of that. Yeah. So um, by those things that that are mentioned there, they are flags to what they plan. Oh, it, yes, absolutely. So, and, there, and so there, there are more vaccines coming. There will be more of this. There will be more of that. That's why they're getting ahead of it. Yeah. 
they're getting ahead of it. And so, I mean, this is what's so blatant, blatant about this whole document and what's so interesting about going back to it now because now we can refer back not only to what they were planning, clearly planning, um, about using the the media and these other sources, um, but also we can we now have hindsight and how we've seen it all unfold. Yeah. When so, we use when we use the they, Catherine, you, I mean you know this territory. When we talk of the they, who is the they? I mean that is the prime minister's department, whatever the official name is for it. The prime minister is the boss of that. I would have thought. Well, so where's the, how did is there any? Is there anything that tells us, you know, is it a they or is it, is is there a couple of they that falls to a further group of they and then sort of trickles down? Got, there's got to be some head of the monster here. Well, I'd make two comments about that. One is to reinforce how this whole thing has been led uh, and sponsored by the Prime Minister's Department. Um, this is all from the... Uh, the DPMC, and it was acknowledged that um, the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet was the lead agency in leading this whole strategy on um, communication and countering um, the disinformation stuff. But there's also some important signals in this document about the international uh, engagement and agendas um, and I'll just read you a couple of them. Um, New Zealand has received numerous requests to share reporting analysis and approaches on countering disinformation from a range of like-minded partners in both bilateral and multilateral contexts. And then it goes on to make reference to Five Eyes, NATO, and the Canadian-hosted G7. Uh, uh, right, yeah. And then elsewhere, um, it... Uh, makes reference to joining these international partners to counter the manipulation of information and spread of disinformation to undermine the international rules-based order. Oh, that's the, the, oh, the international rules-based order. Yeah, okay. There you go. And then there's a third statement somewhere, I'm just looking through my notes, where it's, it's basically uh, pointing out that if New Zealand has a strong... Uh, domestic response to countering so-called disinformation, that it would help us with these international engagements. Oh, so this is our inferiority complex kicking in, is it? Um, well, I think trying it's to please much, our, our masters. It's, and... it's much more than that, um, <laughs> I'd suggest. Uh, you know, it's actually saying, well, you know, our, our international masters, you know, want to see this um, from New Zealand, and and you know we can we can um, we can have kudos with them by having a yeah. Strong but who has the kudos? Response. No one asked us. No. <laughs> what, what do you mean? We're just the New Zealand public. We're just the recipient of all this um, planning and strategizing. Th this is this is off the rails, isn't it, Catherine? This is like off the rails. Um. I mean, because I, you know, I mean, I started my career in government and certainly I started my later consulting career with a strong, um, you know, personal commitment that government was important, you know, and, you know, at the time, um, particularly when, when I came into 
um, government. It was, you know, through that whole period of reforms, which was supposed to be all account, you know, all about accountability and transparency. And those words are still used and still through, you know, um, slung through documents like this. But it's so depressing to me um, as a, a government advisor, and you know, I've given my, you know, my life's career to this to see where we've ended up. I used to be proud of New Zealand and our what I thought was, you know, our accountability framework. But it's just so depressing to see that, you know, a document like this, which I can only describe as sinister and manipulative. Yeah. Like um, if you think of it in relationship terms, it's like you've got a psycho for a partner. <laughs> well, I just want to make a couple of points um, before we go on to talk about something else um, yep. about the media. Um, the document specifically mentions some media outlets, uh, including they mentioned Stuff, Newsroom New Zealand and the spin-off as providing independent narratives that have been very welcome and helpful because they are less likely to be associated with conspiracy theories about state control. So this is, you know, that they're noting specific media outlets as a this is a, this is the talk of someone who's who's thinking in a cunning way. Yeah, hmm. um, this is why I'm, you know, drawing attention to the wording in it. Yeah, um, and uh, it also mentions um, the media council that it would be essential to have. I'm just looking for my notes. Well, funny, we were just talking about the media council yesterday and. Um, the response to the fire and fury. So <laughs> I suppose it's um, where you're going to get Yeah, to. so, I mean, this, this quote here, which is on page 14 of this document, it is essential that this process, i.e. The, the countering disinformation process, includes close, close consultation with academia, civil society organisations, the media council, and other key public stakeholders to ensure it encapsulates the views and experience of experts is transparent, there's that word again, and achieves public buy-in. I know what the word transparency means. It doesn't actually mean transparency. It means the perception of it. Oh, well, of course. I mean, in the way yeah, that but I'm dumb. It takes it. me a bit of time to, to catch up. So, well, I, I was dumb too. I started out, you know, um, decades ago thinking that transparency was actually what that what was meant. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Transparency is creating the perception of or or not ringing enough alarm bells to th for, in people who, who might think that there is a lack of it. Well, um. What it's about is papering over a deliberate intention to ignore anything outside that uh, official narrative. And, 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 and shoot it and down, actually. Shoot and it down. Le legitimizing that by, you know, all this stuff about disinformation. Um, yep. So I'm, I'm going to think it's absolutely clear that um, the government is far back as 2020, and remember the timing of this was very important, of, of this document I'm talking about, yeah. because it was just after the um, the Labor government was, you know, elected with that landslide majority. They knew that the way was clear for them now. Yes, exactly. So they leapt on this straight away, um, and clearly it was wanting to get ahead of um, 
the uh, public information because of the vaccine rollout coming. That's very, very clear um, in this document. So, I wonder. I wonder. Just um, then, spooling ahead to what? What was it last year or, or the beginning of this year? I wonder if Ardern departing was the same kind of mentality of getting ahead of what was to come. Well, there are a lot of people that I've seen, you know, working in government over the years and various agencies who have an instinct for getting out just before everything explodes. Yeah, um, and yes, yeah. <laughs> um, and then yes. going and living overseas, mm. so you're not in the streets like Ashley, too. He's in Switzerland, so when he's walking along the seawall in Eastbourne, no one's going to have a go at him. No, well, exactly, but I think, um, that uh, Ardern has also taken some people with her <laughs> to work internationally, right. um, because we already knew, for example, that um, Kate Hanna. Uh, had some kind of um, scholarship or assignment with the US um, um, State Department. Oh, I didn't know that. Working right. on, oh yes, um, working on um, countering disinformation with a particular focus on the Pacific. Do you think they noticed she washed her hands a lot when she turned up? <laughs> it's like, hey, have you seen how many times she washes her hands? <laughs> Maybe they're all like that. Oh, dear, we can laugh, but actually it's really something. We've got a ridicule. Um, yeah. yeah, all right. Well, that's that. Uh, it's another piece. You see, these pieces are coming into the puzzle now, right? So, um, and if you marry it up with, um, with what we know anecdotally in our own lives, with what we've just seen with the uh, whistleblower stuff and the way that's the reaction to that, and also, and we're going to get on to this now, I think, the um is it going to be a royal commission well the royal commission has been going already sort of under the radar stealthily but this wide-ranging inquiry which i think many of us we can only think that that is in a desperate way that is the only way that that something can be done here legally uh, rationally um with the best interests of the country at heart but it's not on the 100-day plan you're going to tell um, us that Yes, well, um, that's interesting because um, I and another uh, group of um, concerned citizens um, recently wrote to um, the government, the incoming government, and to the existing Royal Commission of Inquiry. And it, was, it started off as a response to uh, some articles that have been in the media um, referring to this Royal Commission of Inquiry as the quiet inquiry. Um, and basically that was about the fact that although they've been uh, established for a year, well, they were, um, the establishment of this uh, Commission of Inquiry was late 2022. Um, the notification I'm looking at is dated October, 5th of October 2022, and then they were to start considering evidence from the 1st of February. 2023. Okay. So yep. between um, February and October, they've been moving through this process of quiet consultation with a pre-selected um, group of um, organisations, individuals um, and agencies. Um, and there's no indication on their website about the criteria that they've used to select that um, group that they were going to um, focus on. 
Um, but there wasn't to be any, well, I should put it in the way, in the words that they've used. Um, from November 2023, there were there was supposed to be um, an opportunity for public input offered um, by the Commission. Uh, but um, what they've been doing is this process of engagement with the selected list. Um, and I've, it's uh, we don't know who's on the list. Uh, yes, oh, you can, on their website, it details oh, okay. yep. all the people that they've consulted with. So I've been through that, and over 40% of it was um, government agencies. Um, there was about 15% uh, that were Māori organisations, um, uh, about 9% um, health organisations, and I'm not talking about um, uh, the specific, like the Ministry of Health. They're in the you know, list of government agencies. These are other health um, officials like um, the hospitals and um, health-related, um, sometimes government-paid-for community agencies that are working in the health sector. Um, academia um, representatives was about 5% and local government about the same. And there's about 25% um, that were kind of other um, community organisations or individuals, including business interests. And in that group, a lot of emphasis on the education sector, um, schools and principals organisations. Why and, would that be? Well, see, um, the government had worked out that um, working through the school system um, is is very effective in order to you know to um, convey the message. Um, so and because you don't want your kids missing out. Well, remember that this Royal Commission of Inquiry is specifically set up to look at the lessons learned from the COVID response. <laughs> you mean in, how, to, in how to do their dirty work better the next time? Well. <laughs> The wording is um, oh it, yeah. uh, they're looking at specifically at lessons learned uh, in preparation for a, a future pandemic. Which right? they seem to know is kind of coming. Okay. Yeah. You see, I think the thing about this Royal Commission is a lot of us have kind of been ignoring it because um, it was set, off, set up with such a very limited terms of reference at the start. Um, and, you know, many of us have thought that, well, this is going to be a, a, a whitewash anyway. Um, so, for, for, for instance, the terms of reference excludes clinical decisions made by clinicians or public health authorities, the epidemiology of the COVID-19 virus, vaccine efficacy, the recent reform to the New Zealand health system, judgments and decisions of courts and the judiciary process, operations of the private sector, decisions of the Reserve Bank, any adaptation of parliamentary processes during the COVID-19 pandemic and the conduct of the 2020 general election. So all of that's excluded from their terms of reference. So basically, there's more left out than they're looking at. They're only really regularly, really looking at um, the kind of regulatory um, to make it easier next time to do what they want to do. 
<laughs> I mean, how, well, if you're going to leave all that stuff out, that's the only conclusion. Well, it's, because, it, because it it's not about the people. Conclusion. It's not about the people at all. No, no. I mean, they're just looking for they don't pointers, care. pointers on how to do it better next time. Yeah, they really but, don't. I mean, it's so sad when you realise that, well, maybe not this government, but Luxon was the guy who said no to the question on vaccine comp, uh, injury compensation. compensation. And he yeah. said it in a very nasty way, I have to say. And I won't forget that, by the way, if you're mm. listening. Um, but this all sounds like, yeah, just how to do the job slicker next time and deal with the munty population that could uh, have a problem with it next time. So, yeah. uh, okay, so that's been going on and now it's been paused, hasn't it? And I guess it would well, have to be. that's yeah. very interesting. So um, a couple of weeks ago I was writing this letter to um, the, the incoming government and the commission um, about the fact that this process of quiet consultation was extremely limited, and I was shocked to re re read on their website that the engagements that they've uh, undertaken between February and the end of October, um, they've only actually consulted with 800 people. And when you think, you know, it makes it look like they've had an awful lot of meetings, which they've had, but, you know, most of those meetings have been with people inside the echo chamber. So with each other, um, yeah. Yeah, the government agencies and all of that. Do we know how much um, this thing costs? No, I don't have the figures on that. About, we can imagine that it's ching-ching by the hour. Oh, yes. Um, so so my letter, So I was writing to uh, a complain about this quiet consultation process and to uh, demand, you know, the right um, to be heard and for public input. But what's happened now is that um, they've put out a press release um, basically saying that they're putting public input, you know, this opportunity that we were to be offered um, for public input. And I think what they had planned to do, because it's kind of indicated in somewhere in their process, um, was that they were going to go through this, uh, these engagements with um, all these meetings with their selected list. Uh, and then they were going to produce a report. And I think the intention was that they would use that as a basis for the further public input, like the government did through the Department of Internal Affairs when they set up that um, public submissions on the um, the proposal for safer online services. Right. Remember that? Yep. C censorship and um, of, of the um, the media platforms. Um and because if you do that, then, you know, you can restrict the public input to the uh, specific questions that you put on, in, in, um, you know, on the basis of their uh, draft report. So we were suggesting that there shouldn't be a draft report until they've had all the public input. And so anyway, now it's changed because they've put the public input on hold and they seem to be assuming that this existing Royal Commission is going to continue to be the mechanism for what's signalled in the coalition agreement about uh, the so-called uh, full-scale, um, wider, uh, comprehensive inquiry. Uh, so, so, which, so that's just bolting on more terms of reference to what's already. Yeah, well, going. That, that that seems to be. It's certainly the indication in the press release that they're assuming 
um, that they're going to have an expanded terms of reference and they indicate, you know, there's lots of platitude statements about how they're, you know, keen to work with the incoming government on what a expanded uh, terms of reference might look like and blah de blah But you have to ask the question now whether, and this is what I, I think, um, in the absence of how this is specifically going to be addressed in the 100-day plan, we now have to be asking the question about whether this existing Royal Commission um, should be the mechanism to carry this forward on the basis of an expanded terms of reference, given that, um, you know, this, is, this has been... Um, this has been led by people who have already bought into this very limited um, commission of inquiry, um, and you know they've already bought in, bought into you know this closed agenda. So are they right? Are they the right? These people, the commissioners, there's three of them, and one's already left, Hekia Parata. Um, but are these people the right people to front the kind of inquiry that's signalled in the coalition agreement? And I, I don't think that just bolting on expanded terms of reference um, and, you know, um, bolting it onto this crock that's already in place um, is the right thing to do. What should happen is that the, this is uh, disestablished. You scrap this. Um, you issue instructions that they transfer all the evidence um, and information that they've so far accumulated to a new inquiry to be set up to actually do the thing properly. Yeah, but who who can do that? Uh, um, this is so all-encompassing, it, it seems, in terms of institutions and, and the, the normal sort of, um, the normal way this would happen that would, that would run. Um, and is there anyone? It's, that's, well, a lot, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, it is a tough one, and they're certainly, you know, going to have to out look, you know, outside of the echo chamber um, to find anybody that the public could really have confidence in who hasn't been associated with, um, you know, the uh, the official narrative of the last few years and the public stonewalling of any questioning or um, inquiring. Um, and trying to get data about this. But I think um, this is where I think we have to follow through by making sure that the stated intentions in the coalition agreement are actually followed through into implementation. And one of the things that gives me hope is that it includes mention of international and national experts. So this is where you hope that, um, you know, some of the people, um, international experts like um, Peter McCulloch and local experts like um, uh, Guy Hatchard could be included. Um, and once that evidence is being given, it's public. So that those are the sort of indications that we must ensure well, I, I, my, get my, carried through. My idea, and what do I know because I don't know much, um, but I do remember back to when the economic summit happened, when the Labor government came in in 84, and they um, used the parliamentary chamber. They got every, now whether it was window dressing on a grand scale or whatever, this is what they did. And they had every, you know, trade unionist business organisation. 
um, uh, in the Chamber of Parliament and it was televised. People got up and they spoke and it was like in your face, you know, um, pretty raw, I guess. Um, I'm thinking that we kind of need to be doing something on that scale. It needs to be in front of everyone. It needs to, um, it really needs to attempt to clear the air. Otherwise, the air won't clear. Well, if you think of the comparison with the inquiry that has been recently conducted on abuse um, in in um, public institutions, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they've they've been going through the evidence diligently. Um, people who were harmed through that process have been given, you know, a lot of reasonable time to outline what happened to them, and that's all been taken into account as as the evidence now. Um, if you compare that with this crock of yeah. <laughs> rubbish um, that you know this current royal commission um, consists of, it's just—I mean, there's no comparison. So what we need is to have a, a commission of inquiry, royal or otherwise, um, that is everything publicly. Well, well, wait on How can we even have a royal? To. How can we even have a royal one? I mean, Jacinda Ardern is working for the royal family. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not. Oh, I'm not going to comment on that. But this is where, you know, we have to pressure the government to ensure that this is more than a whitewash. Um, you know, we everybody's had enough of the stonewalling and the, you know, the liturgy of lies, to use an expression, um, that's gone on. And the refusal, the refusal to um, answer any kind of questioning about, you know, the official narrative and everything that's gone on. So I think, you know, your, uh, your perspective on a, a public forum um, is absolutely right. That's what we have to have. It has to operate like the um, the Royal Commission on on abuse, and and it has it has to be public. Well, and and there's the truth and reconciliation kind of model that the South Africans used, because they had to they had to get over and forgive and park off if they were to carry on, you know, people who did some pretty bad things. Yeah, and. Well, uh, yeah. At this stage, of course, we're a long way from having anybody wanting to acknowledge that they did wrong things. Yeah, but they, anyway, they, they'll come to it. It'll come to that. It will come to that, but you only have to look at how, you know, uh, we were celebrating the um, signals in the coalition agreement, and within a few days, you know, the whistleblower um uh, you know, exploded in, into um, into even the the media, <laughs> uh, and you know, straight away we had uh, the the new minister Shane Retty and the chief executive of Tefato Aura doubling down into the autopilot messages about the safety of the vaccine and um, and all of that. So you know, we're going <laughs> we're going to need. Uh, to force this new government to basically start unraveling all this. Yeah, but uh, where, where should the pressure be applied, Catherine? That's the thing. Because uh, you, the Nats, the Nats, like I say, Luxon on TV a couple of months ago said nah, nah to yeah. the question. You know, it wasn't just well, we need to get more advice on that. Think about that. Take it slowly. It was just nah. And he's a Christian, so he said yes. 
Yes. Well, you so know. Are they going to listen to anything? And we don't know who's bought him. He's had a legacy in big business. He's been wined and dined. We know that for a fact by, you know, the, the top echelon of the um, uh, well of the crowd that, you know, I'm talking about. And then there's David Seymour. Well, you know, he was okay with um, – with um, you know, story time for kids with drag queens in libraries. Last time I talked to him, so I don't know where he's coming from. It's got to be New Zealand first, hasn't it? Because well, that's why a lot of our listeners voted for them. I hope you're listening. I hope absolutely. you're listening, guys. Absolutely. Well, that is absolutely clear, and um, you know that's why New Zealand first before the election was was our only hope, and their own their only hope now. Um, yeah. To try and well, we need to hammer them. them, then, don't we? I mean, let's get real. We need to hammer them. Well, I think a consistent message. Um, well, yes, obviously, uh, because we want to see the signals, the positive signals that we were celebrating. We need to see them coming through into proper implementation. So we've got to be really on top of the detail about what this implementation is going to involve. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. I'm going to clear something here. I've voted for New Zealand First the last four elections. Me too. On, on policies. All right? Yes. I only voted for them for one reason this time. I don't care yes. about any of their other policies. I couldn't give a rat's ass, actually. It's only this one. Only Me this one. Me too. I'm with you exactly on that. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying, yes. Um, Nothing else matters, guys. Don't care about any of your other policies, really, until this one's sorted. Well, that's that's why we're having this conversation and that's why we're focusing on it. And I think RCR yeah. has already done This is why I refuse to give up hope. No, I, because, well, I'm not giving up. No, I, I, totally, yeah. Because we've already done a huge amount. RCR has done a huge amount. Um, to try and bring, you know, to try and drag people um, into looking at this. And I'm just thinking about, you know, years ago, everybody's forgotten about it now, but there was the whole Y2K scam. Do you remember that? 2000, yeah, boy, do I remember that. I had computers. I had a video studio at the time with computers, and we were running around wondering if everything was going to die, and in the end we just decided, I just forget it. Well, exactly. And, um, you know, I, I was working with um, government agencies at the time and they were all running around with all these Y2K committees and there was millions being spent on computer experts to make sure that everything was in place. And then, of course, what happened? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Suddenly nothing nobody, happened as Monty Python. Yeah, so. and nobody said, well, how come, you know, why is all these millions being spent on this? There was nothing that, you know, because, and I think the reason for that was because everybody caught had been caught up in it, including, you know, the general public, as well as all these government agencies, and then they were embarrassed. And so nobody wanted to actually admit, oh, well, actually, yeah, more, nothing happened, um, you know, and it was allowed to just slide away. But, you know, that was only computer systems and nobody was harmed. That's right. By that now we have to make sure that that doesn't happen again, because I my fear is that um, if this is left to flap in the breeze for too long, then we buy a whole new set of problems that we never ever want to have. 
well, that's why that's why I'm drawing attention to the lack of any specific reference on how this is going to be moved forward in the 100-day plan. And, okay, we can say, all right, well, 100 days is just, it's actually quite soon. I think they've already said it basically ends at the end of February. Um, so it's early days. And, of course, everybody's going to go away over Christmas and, you know, the, the government always does this thing about putting things out for consultation during this Christmas, January period, and and at the end of January, they suddenly say, oh, we did this consultation and, um, you know, and it's all over. So we need to make sure that that doesn't happen during this holiday period. Anything more to add, Catherine? No, I think so. We, I think we've, 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 had through a, it. we've had a good bash around on, um, um, on one, this. One thing, though, that could be done in the first 100 days is recommit to it. Well, absolutely, but I do think that we need to see some clarification about um, not not necessarily, you know, pinning down what is going to be the mechanism for this. Is the existing Royal Commission going to be disestablished and scrapped? Um, you know, are they going to establish a new inquiry? But we want to see that at least they're issuing, issuing instructions to the public service to work on this, and yep. we need to see that. Yeah. Catherine Ennis-Carter, as always, great to have you. Let's, Thanks, Paul. Let's see if this this chat drills in somewhere. I, hopefully every little bit counts. And and people listening, probably what you can do is bomb, bombard. Okay, yeah, bombard. we got nothing to lose. Um, the inboxes of everybody, right, that's relevant. Oh, we have, we have to um, bombard. Yeah. And also what I've, what I've been talking to people about before um and I think VFF um, put these notes on their website at one stage about how to write letters to um, to government ministers and so on. And what I said to people is, and it's difficult for people to do this because, you know, most people are just writing on the basis of, you know, they want to flick off an email to uh, the minister in charge of whatever. But what we want to ensure is eyes on. And, you know, if you write, as I've said before, if you if you write to ministers, um, you know, you're lucky if they actually look, look at your letter. It gets flicked off to um, staff. Um, the staff generate a ministerial, you know, in response. Um, and when it comes back to the minister, you know, they might look at the response when they sign it, but, um, you know, often, often they're too busy. And so um, if, but, the purpose of writing is we want more and more eyes on, and we actually have to get at the people lower down from the politicians. We have to get them thinking about what they've been doing in the last three years and that, you know, some of this is really wrong. So I've been encouraging people to not just write to ministers and, you know, copy copy to other ministers, but to actually write specifically to heads of government ministries and agencies as well um, and if in particular if you've got the time try and identify who those um, different senior managers are in those agencies and write to them too because yeah. we want the more eyes on that we can get um, in in writing to people and now's the time you know it's tempting to think oh well we got these things through into the coalition agreement um, but we have to participate and you know bombarding is is a very good way of, of thinking about it and taking action 
Okay, Catherine, thanks for coming back on RCR. Thanks, Paul. Always a pleasure to talk to you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.